Hi, and welcome again to another episode of The Deep End, Conversations in the Global Talent Pool. I'm Jeff Dubisky, Chief Solutions Officer at Workforce Logic, and today, very happy to have with us Dr. Brooks Holtham, Dean and Department Chair at Georgetown University, and also a Senior Advisor to Workforce Logic. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, you bet. Glad to be here. Listen, there was uh, some interesting information and articles out there that you've written around this body of work uh, called job embeddedness. Can you give us a little bit of an overview of what that is and why it matters to organizations? Yeah, I'd be pleased to. Thank you. So as a new doctoral student, thinking about employee retention, uh, I saw that all of the theories were focused on understanding the reasons why people leave. So they talk about job dissatisfaction, dissatisfaction with pay, dissatisfaction with their supervisor. There were constructs like organizational commitment and when people weren't sufficiently committed, they would quit. Well, I thought I'd ask a different question in my doctoral dissertation. And that question was, why do people stay? What are the reasons why people want to stay with an employer? And over the last 25 years, I've really developed this concept with my co-authors, Terry Mitchell and Tom Lee in particular, to understand what are the systematic reasons why people stay? And then to expand that to what can organizations do to increase the odds of developing embeddedness so that people want to stay? So we think of job embeddedness as having two sub-dimensions, one in the organization, and one in the community. And then beneath that, three additional sub-dimensions. So within the organization, what's the degree to which people fit with the job as well as the culture of the organization? So first factor is fit. Next factor is links. What, to what extent do people have connections to other people in the organization, mentors, supervisor, peers, and how strongly do they feel about those relationships? Do they feel like these are positive, healthy human relationships? And then the third dimension is sacrifice. To what degree would they be making a sacrifice if they left this organization to go to a new organization? Sometimes those are financial factors like um, stock options that are not fully vested. Uh, sometimes it's benefits that are much better than competitors are offering. Sometimes it's a, a childcare on site. We find at Georgetown that one of our most sticky benefits, if you will, is Hoya kids. People are really loath to disrupt their kids if their kids are thriving in the local um, daycare. And so these are the, the three factors we think are really important within organizations, but our research also shows that fit, links, and sacrifices in the community or in your outside of work life also matter. So when you're thinking about relocating executives, do they have any connection to the place where they're going? Are they going to fit culturally? There's sort of an old joke at Georgetown, which is, you know, people who are liberal go to Maryland and live in Maryland. Those who are conservative go to Virginia and they commute into DC to the university. Now that's changed a bit over the years as Virginia has become more purple. However, it gives you a sense of, you know, to what degree do people fit in the community? Um, second dimension links, 
To what degree do you have family or friends or maybe a church community that you value? And um, then finally, you know, if your house is, um, you know, really important to you, you've made lots of uh, improvements and it would be hard to find something similar in another place. Well, you're loath to give that up. And so what we have found through two decades now of study is really that people who are more embedded in the organization and people who are more embedded in the community are more likely to stay. That's really the big picture. Some follow-on research has also found that people who are more embedded in the organization are also likely to be higher performers. So that's a, a real positive note for organizations. We've also found that people who are embedded in the community are less likely to be absent from work. Anyway, the, the findings are many. We've looked across many, many contexts. So healthcare, government, military, banking, uh, retail, and across all of these different sectors, the basic findings obtained when people are more embedded, they're less likely to leave. Uh, and I, I love that, thinking more about sort of focusing on the problem of turnover, let's focus on the successes of retention and accentuate that. Because I think, as you mentioned, culture fit is one of the things that, let's face it, when we, when we look at how L&D organizations help fill gaps in learning, uh, we can be taught a number of things, but how we respond to a culture and environment is usually pretty well baked into us uh, when we meet our, meet our career years, wherever that might be. So I, I like that start there for sure. Um, when I think about organizations, at least prior to the pandemic, when remote work became uh, a reality for so many and is now something that is going to be a part of, not in totality, but a part of the composition of how employers hire, um, what were some of the things that you saw? Because you, you mentioned a couple of things. You mentioned, you know, home, which is real estate market. Um, you mentioned churches and whether or not that's a church, a, a mosque, a temple. Um, when I think even around uh, some of the more robust cities that have uh, uh, grocers that focus on certain ethnicities that might be uh, vacant in other locations. Where do you think bringing into the fold community organizations and even creating a, um, uh, a piece of literature, let's say, as people think about where to pick a job or a location, how does that community and organization fold in to work together? Yeah, I lo love the question. Um, because I'm under a, a non-disclosure agreement, I can't tell you which uh, client I was working with, but it's a Fortune 100 company that is located in the Midwest uh, region of the United States. And they spend a lot of money and resources hiring minorities out of MBA programs, underrepresented minorities, and in particular, African-Americans. Um, but they were finding that they would come to this city and not really get well integrated. And within two years, they would typically leave. And so the investment the company had made in you know, selecting them, recruiting them, training them, putting them in mentoring programs, all of these investments were sort of quickly lost. They reached out um, to me and I partnered with a local hospitality company and what we did was try to identify through a survey, personal interest survey, that these new, uh, newly hired employees would fill out 
just tell us about your interests. Do you like salsa dancing? Do you um, do yoga? Um, do you like to go to the farmer's market? What are some of your interests? We also queried them about where they'd like to do service. Well, it turns out that a lot of them are community-minded and they wanted an opportunity to give back. And so working with this hospitality company, <clears throat> We every week sent out an email that was customized to each person saying, here's where the salsa dancing is happening this week, or here's where the farmer's markets are. And so they got these opportunities to get connected in the community. Also, and importantly, we helped to place them on nonprofit boards. So if you know they came from the inner city and they felt a desire to give back to underrepresented minorities, we could get them on the, the board of the, you know, the boys and girls clubs or, you know, the Boy Scouts or, you know, whatever the organization sort of spoke to their soul. And so they would get friends and, and commitments. And over a multi-year period, they found that the embeddedness of these employees went up and the turnover went down. So for us, it was a very meaningful way to help this organization um, really not solve one problem, which was employee retention, but also how to be a better um, supporter of their local communities. Uh, that's great. That's, and, and when I think about uh, maybe blending a couple of the things that you mentioned there, obviously, that's a wonderful thing to focus on when it comes to the candidate soon to be employee. Um, Thinking about trailing spouses, though, and, and, and really there's a couple of cohorts that, that make sense, right? I, I, I know that one organization I worked with in, in upstate New York was a, uh, a higher ed institution and professors coming in with trailing spouses, trailing families, military, of course. And, and oftentimes um, unhappiness in the family unit <laughs> that trails, um, trying to find their own way into the, uh, the, uh, the community themselves. Um, is there really a role for an organization to play uh, in ensuring the, the family unit well-being in the community as well? Or maybe going back to the original question, how can community organizations bolt into other uh, companies to help them with trailing spouses and families? Hmm, that's a provocative question, Jeff. Thanks. The, um, if you're considering relocating, having the trailing spouse be a part of that process. So looking at homes before they re relocate. So some extra expense, you know, with extra flights, um, and, but well worth the investment to increase the odds. You use the word insure. I don't know that any company can guarantee that they can make that work, but <laughs> you systematically seek to increase the odds if I were trying to apply this model from this organization in the Midwest, I would do exactly the same with these trailing spouses and say, tell me about your interests. What's important to you? Can we help you vet um, private schools or, you know, um, running clubs with dogs or, you know, whatever it is that sort of speaks to you. And we all know that those first 90 days are critical, right? That's the time when people are getting to know their co-workers, they're getting comfortable with the culture or not comfortable with the culture. These things manifest pretty early. So to the degree the organization can sort of open the gates or create opportunities or make introductions for people, 
I think that they increase their odds. No guarantees, but you systematically uh, improve the chances you have at helping that spouse feel welcome, comfortable, integrated. That's that's, that's a great point for sure. So lots of ways to focus in on retention. I know that one organization I dealt with many years ago was very big on the stay interview, making sure that the supervisors, managers, leaders regularly had touch points uh, and intentional conversations about how are you doing, how are you feeling, and, and kind of leaning into that to make sure that they didn't have a spike in turnover. And maybe that was just with high potential, high risk, and maybe it was across the board. Um, but we are creatures of habit as well. And uh, I think that we not only need to feel safe and secure about having that conversation, but an organization that looks to, to either move people horizontally or vertically in opportunity. Um, what are some of the things that organizations should do, could do, especially around data and uh, predictive, I'll carefully say, uh, behaviors that could give us indications of loss and, and appropriate intervention strategies? Yeah, I love the question. Thank you. I am. Um had the privilege of working with engaged talent to try to identify, um, is there publicly available data that we could analyze using AI machine learning to try to predict who would be more or less open to recruiting pitches and more or less open to applying for a position? And it turns out that there are a series of things, many of which are sort of predicted by job embeddedness theory that would help us get some indication of whether someone's thinking about leaving. So uh, LinkedIn is a rich um, source of information. And for example, if we know, we know from prior research publicly available that people are more likely to consider leaving around anniversaries of employment five-year anniversary, 10-year anniversary, et cetera. There's something about sort of those um, milestones that cause them to reflect and say, hmm, been here five years. Is this a good place for me to continue? Will I be able to achieve my career goals? Most of us don't get up every morning and say, okay, how do I feel about the progress I'm making towards career goals, right? Most of us get up and we have a to-do list and we're working down that to-do list each day without those sort of bigger picture um, thoughts, but the LinkedIn, um, you know, descriptive data suggests that people around those milestones are more likely to, to think about leaving. Anytime you see someone updating profiles on LinkedIn or other social media, it's an indicator, right? They're thinking about something. It may not be a perfect predictor of turnover, but there are reasons why people do that and they're motivated to do it. Um, when people buy a new home, that might operate in the exact opposite direction, though. And mm. usually that's publicly available data, right? So I've just given you a, a few hints of the types of indicators we can look at. Some are at the more macro level. It turns out that an organization that has just been indicted has a lot of people who are more likely to look about leaving, right? Right. Maybe there's some bad press, you know, maybe uh, they're a mining company and some effluent got into a local water stream and employees are a little bit embarrassed that their employer is maybe not upholding all its promises and they think about leaving. So some of the factors are more organizational. 
Some of them are more, you know, idiosyncratic or personal, but we took, um, you know, 20 to 30 indicators and we used machine learning to identify which were the best predictors of people who would be open to a recruiting pitch. Mm. And we identified them as unlikely, possibly, likely, and highly likely. And then we sent out the invites for real jobs, mind you. This was not some trick. And out of a pool of 5,000, it turns out that the people who are highly likely in our estimating model click through at a rate that was 20 times higher than the ones that we had rated as unlikely to click through. Right. So it was a validation of this um, concept that was eventually published in August of 2019 in Harvard Business Review. Um, And so for me, I think that that's an application of the job embeddedness theory that helps us get a better sense of who might be at risk of leaving. Now to answer your question more directly, I'd say, wow, If I am a manager, I would love to get an email that says, hey, Sue in accounting looks to be at an elevated risk of leaving. Why don't you engage in a stay interview with her? Mm -hmm. So that's the type of maybe technological assist leaders can get to be better able to intervene and reduce the probability of losing, as you suggested, you know, the high performers or people with high potential. Sure. What about, so, so that's open source, you know, that, that information is out there. It's publicly driven. Obviously when we update our, our LinkedIn profiles, join groups, whatever it might be to, to accentuate that activity, we want to be seen, but what about ethically uh, maybe even our internal behaviors? Uh, We know that flight risk tends to occur when we see certain things happen through help desk tickets or HR uh, tickets, such as when you were mentioning milestones, five and 10 years, when does something vest? Um, When am I eligible for this? Uh, Do certain things get paid out at certain time periods, right? I want to stay for just enough time to get my bonus. Um, Obviously that becomes very rich data and that's internal. Um, should we be using it? Should organizations be looking at that to do appropriate interventions, um, even proactive recruitment to, to backfill roles? Um, or, or, are we, or are we straddling a line that maybe shouldn't be crossed? Mm. Yeah, this is a little bit of a tricky issue, right? Because you have the data available in your HRIS system. And the question is, what do you do with that? How far do you share that? So. Um, in my mind, so now you're, there are two questions really, Jeff. One is what's legal and the other is what's ethical. Um, I wanna respect people's you know, right to determine their ethical standard, but that I, HRIS data within the organization is legal, right? So people can use that data to make managerial decisions. The question is, should they? So, Uh, As a leader, I think for me, I don't know that I would necessarily want to know the micro variables, but I think that it would be very beneficial if I had an indicator, I don't know, maybe we can think, you know, red, yellow, green or something. And if one of my people gets in that yellow zone, hey, it's, it's just saying you ought to reach out, put your arm around this person figuratively or 
have a conversation to see how are things going? You know, how do you feel about your career? How can I help? How can I mentor or support you? And, um, you know, I think organizations, quite honestly, would be foolish not to take advantage of that data. Now, I, I, you know, one of the things that we know is that the loss of a parent, the loss of a child or a divorce, these personal things can be triggers for people thinking about leaving, reorganizing their life. But uh, so I, I wouldn't necessarily want HR to be reporting all of these personal details. I think that that probably crosses an ethical line. But anything that, that sort of elevates the probability of someone leaving, I think that the manager should get this sort of yellow light email that says, you know, why don't, why don't you have a conversation? Yeah, agreed. Agreed. So we've covered a lot of ground and this has been great. I, I, I'm going to ask a bit of a loaded question, which is probably an opportunity maybe for us to meet uh, at a later date on a broader set of, of time for this particular topic. But when I think about um, how generations respond, right? We, we, for many years now, have had people to try to completely bucket people by their generation. Mm -hmm. And I think what you've just talked about, life events, community, things of that, you know, in my mind, I'm envisioning a storyboard of a person's life, early career, five-year anniversary, 10-year anniversary, purchase of a home, kids. We just covered those moments that matter in our lives. So as you think about retention, as you think about attraction, um, should we be zeroing in so much on some of the nuances and stereotypes of generation? Should we be looking more at life events or should we be combining that for, for a better lens? What, what are your thoughts there? Well, first, thanks for being provocative because people might be going to sleep on me right about now. No, or not at all. Um, two, I'm in D.C. and we get lots of hard questions here. Um, in presidential elections, I teach classes on leadership. I frequently get questions about handicap, the probability that this person's a good leader or a bad leader. Um, I, so I'm, I'm comfortable taking, taking the hard question. Thanks. The... Um, I guess I would have a, a bit of a criticism of what I would call sort of anecdotal um, reporting on Gen X, millennials, Gen Z, and just making these broad sweeping statements that this generation values this and they're not loyal, they're quick to leave, et cetera. If you do a careful analysis, and this has been done through academic research, of all of these sort of criticisms of the various generations, if you line them up with the age of those people when these articles were written, so Gen X, when Gen Xers were young, were exhibiting, right? Just right. a Gen X self-identifying. The um, criticism of Gen X when they were young is that, you know, they're not loyal, they're questioning the status quo, questioning authority, blah, blah, blah. And the next thing you know, 10 years later, the millennials are questioning the status quo, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. The research is actually pretty clear on this, that it's not so much a cohort effect as it is an age effect. Mm. And so people in those first five years of their career are rightly exploring what's good for me. We're so cruel to 
college sophomores and saying, look, by December 1st, you have to lock in on a major. And it feels like a huge decision for them, right? And they're like committing to the future. And my own path was one where I got a master's degree in tax accounting and got my CPA, but within a few years was sort of disenchanted with accounting. So I went back to school, retooled, got a graduate degree, and now I'm a professor. And a lot of people who are listening to this call today or watching this podcast had the same experience. They were out for three, four years, saw something that looked better, retooled, got a certificate, got some experience, whatever it was, and jumped on a new trajectory. Well, you know, that's why I have a job is because every year, 250 MBAs make that choice. Right. So, you know, it shouldn't surprise us that young people are exploring jobs and that the turnover rate among young people is elevated. That's just sort of the nature of the beast. Now, a colleague of mine, Peter Hom at Arizona State, um, has a great study looking at Fortune 500 turnover. And what he found is that it also varies by your length of tenure. So in the first three years across the Fortune 500, on average, the turnover rates are between six, seven, eight percent per year. But by the time someone gets to five years, the turnover rates there are two to three percent. And when they get to 10, 10 years, one percent per year. Right. And it just sort of stays down there. So it's age and tenure and those things are correlated among young people, right? So the new Gen Zers, yeah, they're both new on the job and they're young. Why were we surprised that they have elevated turnover? Absolutely. No, and I, I'm glad the data proves that too. It's been uh, one of the things that I, I often find regularly still coming out, as you mentioned, it's not necessarily a, a direct cohort relationship. And so glad that you were able to validate this for us. Really, this has been a fantastic conversation. We've covered a lot of ground I greatly appreciate it. If the audience was to take away one or two things that they should start doing or think about doing tomorrow and all of this, what would, what would you challenge them to do? I don't want to date this podcast into the future, but we're coming out of a pandemic. I hope we're coming out of a pandemic. And as I'm thinking about uh, people coming back to the office and what's the right mix of remote work versus you know, in-person contact. As we're thinking about how do we maintain our culture, as we think about how to develop relationships and maintain those relationships, I think job embeddedness can be an orienting framework for you to say, if what we want is to encourage employee retention, we then need to do those things that systematically help people feel like they fit with the job and the culture. They have connections or links that are meaningful to other people. And there are things that we're offering, perhaps flexibility, flexibility in your hours, flexibility in the days you come to work. And we create an environment where people feel like they would be giving something up when they left this organization relative to others you increase the odds that they stay. That's fabulous. That's fabulous. I really appreciate that. It's, it's, it's a great, uh, great jump off point for us. Uh, 
Dr. Holden, thank you so much for your time, for your insight, uh, great research, and uh, we appreciate the topics covered. Uh, we hope to have you back in, in terms of dating this. You know, you're right. So here we are in the, uh, the late summer months of, of 2021. Uh, let's maybe replay this in a year, see where we're at, and uh, pull up some new research. Thanks great. So love to talk time. to you again. Yeah, pleasure. Right. See you. Thanks. See you next time on The Deep End.